So Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. When I was a young guy, about 26 years old, I was managing my first big construction job as an engineer. Uh, Everything was going really well, but then I made this mistake. Uh, It was just a small mistake, just one little thing on one little drawing, uh, but it was my mistake. And that mistake ended up costing over $100,000 to fix. Uh, Yeah, so it was no small thing. And I remember being on our construction site and news of this mistake starts to spread around. And as I walk around the site, I kind of imagine people going, oh, that's the guy. That's the guy that made uh, that mistake. And I'm really starting to sweat. And I remember sitting, I was standing there with a bunch of people trying to work out, what do we do? Uh, how do we avoid this? And then my phone rings, and I take my phone out of my pocket, and on the screen, uh, the guy that is phoning me is the top manager of that construction site. Now, this guy, uh, he is brutal. Uh, he is loud. He is aggressive. He has a reputation for really tearing people apart. I remember being on a loud construction site. He was 100 metres away, and I heard him just ripping into someone over something that they hadn't done right. And I'm staring at my phone, and it's his name uh, on my screen. And so I'm just kind of frozen. And the guy next to me says, Mike, you actually, you'd be better off just answering it. If, if this goes to voicemail, he will just get angrier, and he will get in his car, and he will drive around site until he finds you. And so I kind of sigh, and I hold up, the phone and I press the little answer button and I hold it to my ear and I hear his voice barreling down the phone line and I hear these words, Mike Horgan, don't you worry about this, don't you stress about it, it's fine, you just keep doing everything else that you've got to deal with and if anybody gives you trouble over this, you send them to me and I swear that I will have such a conversation with them, it will take them years of therapy to recover. (laughs) And then he just hangs up. Like he wasn't the kind of he wasn't the kind of guy that would actually wait for you to say goodbye. He would just kind of unleash what he wanted to, and then he would just sort of uh, leave. Uh, 
Oh, I, you know, that was many years ago, but I still remember the feeling that I had after that. I was just flooded with this wave of relief. Like, all of my burden, all of my mistake that I had made, just gone like that in one phone call. I mean, what a comfort to have that guy phone up and say, hey, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. You can sense my relief, I'm sure. (coughs) I think you can sense my relief because part of life is making mistakes, right? Uh, We all make mistakes, we all make errors of judgment, we all do things that we regret, we all inevitably hurt uh, other people. I'm sure you have, I'm sure you've said to yourself before, oh, if I could only just go back in time 10 minutes, I wouldn't say that. If I could just go back in time 10 days, I wouldn't do that and then I wouldn't be sitting here in all this shame and guilt. In some ways, I think for Christians, uh, that's even worse because actually the Scriptures have given us a real keen sense of our failure before God. And so actually sometimes we can feel that kind of shame and that guilt before God. Is there something terrible in your past that even today, even though it was years ago, even now when you think of it, it just kind of floods you with shame. You can't believe you did that. Or is there some past event that actually nobody in this church knows about, uh, but God knows? And the thought of standing before God when he brings it up haunts you as you think about your shame made public. You know that feeling, I'm sure, that that feeling when actually in the morning you just want to hide under your doona, away from the world, and actually not have to deal with your sin and your shame and the things that you have done wrong. Well, when you're flooded by that feeling of shame and guilt because of your actions, would you not love a phone call from God, like the phone call that I got on that construction site, a phone call where God just says, it's all right, don't worry about it, and just sort of instantly takes away your shame and your guilt? Well, Isaiah chapter 40, it's like that kind of phone call. Isaiah 40, it brings a soothing relief to God's people who are weighed down by their sin and their mistakes and their shame. And man, these guys in Jerusalem, they have made some serious mistakes. Jerusalem is ruined. The temple is destroyed. Their countrymen are are dead or they're over in exile over in Babylon. Now that, for these guys in Jerusalem who have survived, that's a serious burden. That is a lot of shame and guilt. And as these surviving people in Jerusalem sit in their shame, in their destroyed city, they get this message from God. It starts with verse 1. Look at verse 1. Look at the first few words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's really what you want to hear, isn't it? When you're weighed down by your shame and your guilt. Comfort, comfort my people. God repeats comfort twice. It's like God is saying, it's okay, it's okay. Don't stress, don't stress. It's all right, it's all right. Oh, what a comfort. Oh, that's what this passage is about. This passage is about comfort for God's sinful people. This passage, it's a soothing balm for God's people who are rightly burdened by their sin and their mistakes. This is a great passage for us as Christians to read when we have a right sense of our sin and our guilt. It's a comforting passage. 
And the rest of the passage is God giving these survivors in Jerusalem reasons why they can take comfort. The first reason that he gives them is that their sin has been paid for. Have a look at verse 2. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. (coughs) So God wants Isaiah to announce to Jerusalem that her hard service has been completed. In other words, that her time of punishment is over, that her time of exile is done. God is announcing that it's going to be over. Well, why is it over? Well, look at the next few words. Isaiah, uh, sorry, Israel's exile is over because her sin has been paid for. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I don't think that literally means that God has punished her twice over, for her sin and rebellion, because that would be unjust. One of the characteristics that God has is that he is just, so it can't mean that. I think the simplest way of understanding it is to understand it as a poetic way of saying, Israel, there is no doubt that your punishment is over. There's no doubt that any sin remains. It's been removed twice over. Now, Now, that is comforting for them, To know that without any doubt, the debt that they owed God has been paid, that they are forgiven, that they are free. I mean, even though that Israel is stubbornly sinful, centuries, centuries of sin and stubbornness, there's a reason that Israel can find comfort, and it's knowing that God has completely, abundantly, certainly forgiven. Her sin is totally paid for, no debt remains. And that's comforting for God's sinful people. And look at the comforting way that God wants Isaiah to actually articulate it for them. Look at the first couple of words in verse 2. The first few words say, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to sinful, hard-hearted people and let her know that her sins have been paid for. Speak tenderly, that's literally speak to her heart. Tell her In her heart, her sins are forgiven. So this is not some sort of cold, emotionless announcement from the moral accounting department of God, letting Jerusalem know that her sins and her debt have finally been neutralised. No, this is a compassion-filled announcement from a comforting God. It's kind of the way that you would speak to a sobbing child when they know that they've done something wrong. Now, think of what it feels like to be weighed down by your sin and your shame and your guilt. Verse 2 is exactly what you want to hear from God when you're in that place, weighed down by sin and shame. Comfort, comfort my people. Your sins has been paid for. Now, we're only at verse 2, but you can imagine how Jerusalem are already feeling when they hear this, right? You can imagine the flood of relief and comfort as they hear God say to them, tenderly, speaking to her heart, your sin has been paid for. But the comforting news actually just keeps on coming. Not only has her sin been paid for, but God is returning to them for a relationship. See, if you're a survivor in Jerusalem, it really does feel like God has abandoned you. It really does feel like he has left. The nation is in ruins, the temple has been destroyed... 
The rest of your countrymen are over in exile, over in Babylon. It really does feel like God has abandoned them. But then in Isaiah's vision, the next thing that happens is he hears this voice telling the survivors in Jerusalem, hey, get ready, God is returning. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, Now just stop there. Uh, just when you see the word Lord and it's all in capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's showing you that the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, God's personal name. Uh, so read verse 3 again with me. Isaiah hears a voice of one calling out, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, for Yahweh, for God. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now if you're living in Jerusalem, you feel, you feel kind of abandoned actually by God. It really does feel like he has abandoned you. Your nation's in ruins, the temple is gone and Isaiah hears this voice crying out to Jerusalem, God, Yahweh is returning. So prepare a highway for him to travel into Jerusalem on. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God to come. And the next picture that we get is a picture really of all the earthworks starting to happen to build this road. Look at verse 4. Every valley shall be raised up Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. A nice, flat, straight road for Yahweh, for God to return to Jerusalem. And so, in Isaiah's vision, he hears this voice crying out, Jerusalem, get ready. Despite your sin, God is returning to you. Prepare a path for him. Many years ago, when my wife and I were travelling through Europe, we were in Berlin, where we saw Berlin preparing a path for someone important to visit her. It wasn't us. Uh, We were taking a tour through Berlin, and around the corner came all these police cars and motorbikes with the, the kind of flashing lights, and they were clearing motorists and people out of the way. They were making this path for for someone to kind of enter into uh, Berlin on. They were moving people out of the way and our tour guide, who was a very proud German, uh, said this, oh yeah, this happens all the time in Berlin. Berlin is a very important city and so we have very important politicians and world leaders come and, and visit us. So, you know, it's going to be someone really important. So we're all kind of like eagerly looking um, to who will it be and the police are continuing to clear this path and then around the corner comes the people that the police were creating a path for. Around the corner came 50 large German men dressed up as Santa on motorbikes. Uh, Because it was close to Christmas. And our tour guide, our proud tour guide, looked somewhat humbled. But that's what's happening in Isaiah's vision. Isaiah, he hears this voice cry out, Jerusalem, I know you feel abandoned by God because of your sin, but get ready, prepare a path, because he is coming back into Jerusalem. Clear a path for God. Uh, Now, God doesn't actually need a road to travel on, and so I doubt that anybody actually went out into the wilderness and started building a road. This is poetic. This is Isaiah's way of kind of saying, get ready. God hasn't abandoned you. And he's returning for a relationship. And then Isaiah, he gets this vision of God actually doing it. He gets the vision of God actually travelling along this highway, returning to Jerusalem. Because in the vision, someone climbs up a mountain close to Jerusalem and kind of looks out to the horizon and actually sees God coming down this highway. Pick it up from verse 9 with me. Verse 9. 
You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. So the images of of someone climbing up a mountain around Judah, (coughs) around Jerusalem, and looking out to see God coming down this highway. He's kind of on the horizon, and so they start to shout out to Jerusalem and the towns, I see him, here he is, here's our God, he's returning. And just think of what that sounds like. Just think of the comfort for these survivors in Jerusalem with that vision, because it totally feels like God has had enough of them and their sin. It totally feels like God has left them. The nation is in ruins. The countrymen are dead, or they're in exile. The temple is destroyed. It really does feel like God has abandoned them. So imagine how comforting this vision is as this excited watchman cries out, Here he comes, I can see him, he is returning to us. And the closer that God gets, the people start to notice something. God's actually bringing something with him along this highway. He's got something with him as he travels back along this highway towards Jerusalem. Look at the next verse, verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. So God is travelling along this highway in the desert, heading back to Jerusalem, but he's not travelling lightly. He's bringing his reward, his recompense with him. Now, they're, they're words that refer to something that you've earned or something that you have won. So God is coming back to Jerusalem with his reward, with something that he's earned, something that he has won. And most commentators will say, that's an image of a soldier coming back from war with spoils of war. So the image is of God returning from battle with stuff that he has won, which makes you ask the question, where has he been battling? And what exactly has he won in this battle? And what is he bringing back? Is it gold? Uh, Maybe it's jewels or priceless artefacts prized from the nations that he's defeated. What is it? What is all the loot and reward that God has won in battle, that he is travelling down this road with towards Jerusalem? Did you notice when we read it what he's carrying? It's in the next verse. Verse 11 tells you what it is that he's actually carrying. He's carrying sheep. Look at verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young So God is walking down this highway back to Jerusalem, carrying sheep. Now sheep, is it's a common Old Testament metaphor for God's people. So can you see what's happening in this vision? God is in the wilderness, travelling down this pathway, back to Jerusalem, bringing his people, bringing his sheep with him. Well, where do you get people out in the wilderness? Ah, this is, unless you've seen it yet, maybe this is the point that the penny drops. This is a picture of God bringing back his people from Babylon, Let me kind of sketch it out for you on a map. Uh, So here's our map. Here's what's going on in the vision. There's Jerusalem, uh, feeling totally abandoned by God. And the rest of the Israelites, well, they're over here in Babylon. And in Isaiah's vision, the people of Jerusalem, they're supposed to build a road out in the wilderness. And in the vision, God is coming back to Jerusalem on this road, bringing his sheep, bringing his people with him from Babylon. 
So here's the comfort for these people. Firstly, their sin is paid for. Uh, Secondly, God is returning for a relationship. And thirdly, God is gathering his people from exile to bring them back to Jerusalem to live there with him. And look at the tenderness with which God shepherds these sheep back to Jerusalem. Look again at verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That is a comforting vision for these people in Jerusalem. Everything about this passage is a comforting vision for sinful people in Jerusalem. Their sin has been paid for. God is returning. He's bringing people back from exile. Can you feel the comfort in that to a people weighed down by their sin and shame? Can you feel the comfort for the people who feel like they've actually driven God away from them? But did it happen? I mean, this is great comfort, but did it actually happen? Well, it did actually. Many years after Isaiah's vision, God did lead people out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. Uh, Many, many years later, the, the Babylonian kingdom is conquered and a Persian king just sends all of the exiles in Babylon back to Jerusalem and they rebuild. So many years after this comforting vision, Israel are actually brought out of exile and back to Jerusalem. This vision of comfort is actually fulfilled for Israel. But there's an even greater way that this passage gets fulfilled. This vision of comfort is actually fulfilled for you and I in the life of Jesus. This vision of comfort is actually quoted by the New Testament to explain who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. As the New Testament opens, as the story of the life of Jesus begins, this is the passage which gets quoted to explain Jesus. As the story of Jesus starts, we find John the Baptist, don't we? We find John the Baptist preparing people for the coming of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 comments on that. It's up on screen for you. Look at this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So there's John the Baptist preparing people for Jesus to arrive. Look at the next bit. This is he, so John is the one, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So remember Isaiah's vision. In this vision, a voice calls out to God's sinful people, prepare a way for God to come, prepare a way for Yahweh. And now according to the Gospels, that voice crying out is John the Baptist. Prepare a way for God, prepare for God to come, that that is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the voice crying out, prepare for Yahweh to arrive. But who is it that actually arrives? It's Jesus. Shows you a lot about who Jesus is, doesn't it? Doesn't it suggest that Jesus is God? Because in Isaiah's vision, this voice is crying out, prepare for Yahweh to come to Jerusalem. Prepare for God to come to Israel. And the Gospel writers say that that voice shouting out, prepare for God to come, turns out to be John the Baptist, who's preparing for Jesus to come. Notice also that in Isaiah's vision... When God comes, people see him. After this road is made, God comes into his sinful people and people actually see him. Look at verse 5, for instance. 
And the glory of the Lord, that's the glory of God, of Yahweh, will be revealed and all people will see it. In Isaiah's vision, people actually see the glory of God, which is why at the end of verse 9, people are crying out, here he is, because they can actually see God, which is exactly what happens in Jesus. When Jesus comes, people actually see the invisible God. They see him, they eat with him, they walk with him, they talk with him, they listen to him. Sometimes people will say to me, uh, Mike, I'd actually believe too if I could see God. And sometimes I will respond by saying, actually, to be honest, I would love to see God as well. But unfortunately, I was born about 2,000 years too late. Because 2,000 years ago, I could have actually seen him in Jesus. He was seeable. In, in Jesus, people see God. They touch him, they walk with him, they listen, they eat with him. And shockingly, They crucify him. See, this glorious vision in Isaiah chapter 40 of God himself coming back to his sinful people in Jerusalem to comfort them, this gorgeous vision of God coming to comfort his sinful people ends with them actually crucifying him. He comes to Jerusalem saying, comfort, comfort my people, and Jerusalem respond by saying, crucify, crucify him. God comes to his sinful people in Jerusalem to comfort them over their sin and they heap sin upon sin by actually crucifying the one who came to comfort them. He gets crucified and the amazing irony of that is that's the only reason that anybody in this room can actually find comfort for their personal sin. Because the crucifixion of Jesus is the only source of forgiveness and comfort for sin that we have. In Isaiah 40, God gives three reasons his sinful people in Jerusalem can find comfort. Their sins are paid for, he's returning for relationship, and God is gathering his exiled people. And stunningly, beautifully, the crucifixion of Jesus means all those three reasons that Jerusalem had to find comfort in her sin are actually the three reasons that we can as well. Because the crucifixion of Jesus gives us all those three things on screen. Just look at that first one. Sin is paid for. Well, that's exactly what Jesus came to do on the cross, isn't it? He came to give his life as payment for your sin. Your sin has been paid for because Jesus on the cross paid it. We may well look at our lives and be dismayed at our lustful thoughts, our pride, our anger, our judgmental attitude, our idolatry. And yet into the shame of that floods the words, comfort, comfort my people. Your sin has been paid. Look at that second point, God returns for relationship. That's exactly what happened in Jesus, isn't it? Instead of abandoning us to this to our sin as, as we were deserved, God actually comes to us in Jesus seeking relationship. We may rightly look at our hard-heartedness, our failure to conquer sin, and rightly wonder, why doesn't God just give up on me? Why doesn't God just abandon me? Yet into that despair comes the comfort of knowing that God hasn't abandoned you. 
He never left. He hasn't abandoned. He has actually come to us for relationship through Jesus. Look at that third point. People gathered out of exile. It's exactly what Jesus achieves. He gathers exiles like you and I. You and I are exiled. We are cut off from God relationally because of our sin. But into that exile, into that loneliness, comes the comfort of knowing that Jesus came to take us out of our relational exile and adopt us into God's family through the cross. Isaiah 40, I suspect, was one of the most comforting passages for God's sinful people in Jerusalem because it promised three things, that their sin was paid for, that God was returning for a relationship and that he was gathering exiles to bring them home. There must have been amazing comfort for sinful people in Jerusalem as they sat in their shame and their destroyed city. Amazingly, this passage also gives us as Christians reasons to find comfort because all those reasons to find comfort when we fail God are also given to us in Jesus Christ. There's comfort for us in this room as God's sinful people because by Jesus, our sin has been paid. In Jesus, God comes seeking relationship. And through Jesus, we are brought out of our relational exile and gathered into God's family. There is amazing comfort for God's sinful people through Jesus and his work on the cross. But sadly, there's actually one type of person for whom this is no comfort. There's one type of person for whom this offer of comfort does not actually extend to, and it's the unrepentant. It's those of us who happily never change sin in our life. Repentance or turning from sin, that's the highway that John the Baptist called people to build before Jesus arrived, wasn't it? Remember in Isaiah's vision, that voice cries out to God's sinful people, prepare a highway for Yahweh, prepare a highway for the God of comfort to come. But when John the Baptist fulfills that verse, he cries out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. Prepare a highway of repentance for Jesus. Repentance, that's the highway that John the Baptist calls people to prepare in their hearts for Jesus to come on. Uh, Now, repentance is much more than just admitting that we are sinful. It's much more than just feeling regret and remorse about sin. It includes actively turning away from sinful thoughts and behaviour. But that's the highway that John the Baptist calls people to prepare for Jesus to come in on. But there's no comfort for those who build no highway. Uh, There's no comfort for those of us who never repent There's no comfort for those of us who happily, purposefully and joyfully just keep on sinning just because we think God will forgive us. I mean, isn't that the attitude that had Jerusalem destroyed? There's no comfort for those of us who never repent. Now, to be absolutely clear on something, none of us actually ever repent perfectly. Uh, None of us can ever fully and permanently and perfectly turn from our sin. We're actually too broken to actually do that. 
But for the person that genuinely hates their sin, and for that person who genuinely and constantly tries to turn from it, even though they keep failing, for that person, oh, there's great comfort in Jesus. Because on that highway of repentance, even though it's not smooth, even though it's pretty rocky, on that highway comes Jesus to pay for sin, to restore relationship with God, and to bring you out of exile and into God's family. And as we approach Christmas, it is a great time to repent of our sin. It's a great time coming into Christmas to think hard and to repent from sinful thoughts and actions. And Christmas is a great time to find comfort in doing that. Comfort as we hear the words of our gracious God say to his repentant people, comfort, comfort my people. Almighty God, we grieve our sin, but you forgive all those who truly repent, so have mercy on us. Comfort us in the knowledge that you have paid for our sin, that you have come for us for relationship through Christ, and that you gather us from exile and into life with you, and strengthen us in our service of you and of our desire to live a new life to your glory. Amen.